You're tuned into an extra from Aspen Ideas To Go, a podcast by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In this short series, a supplement to our regular show, we'll feature discussions with thought leaders on what every American should know, a project by the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. The program is tapping the American public and cultural leaders to build a crowdsourced national list of facts and references every American should know. The idea for the list came from a 1987 book called Cultural Literacy. It laid out a list of 5,000 words and references that represented a sort of common vocabulary needed to be engaged in the U.S. Author Edie Hirsch saw major blowback, with critics calling the book racist and sexist, among other things. But it initiated a powerful conversation about what you need to know to navigate American life. Executive Director of the Citizenship and American Identity Program, Eric Liu, says Hirsch was partly right. Now more than ever, a diversifying U.S. needs a shared base of knowledge. But he thinks a 21st century sense of civic and cultural literacy must be radically more inclusive than Hirsch's list. In today's show, Liu speaks with Colin Woodard, an award-winning journalist and author. His book, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America, is about politics, history, and culture in the United States. In it, he offers a take on why American values differ across the country. For example, East Texans may view the concept of freedom differently than New Englanders. Woodard also writes for the Portland Press-Herald and is a contributing editor at Politico. Here's his conversation with Eric Liu. Colin, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I want to dive in, uh, actually just beginning with uh, your uh, previous book, uh, American Nations, uh, where you really uh, said that the United States, or indeed North America, uh, consists of uh, 11 different regional cultures, um, nations in a sense, cultural nations, uh, and that uh, you can't really understand life in America without uh, being able to see this way. What were some of those uh, nations? Sure, many of them tied back to their to the separate origins that each has in a different cluster of colonies along what's now the eastern or southern rims of the United States. And for example, you would have the New England colonies, and they uh, they created starting in Massachusetts Bay with the Puritans. You had a a colonization stream that um, went out through the 1830s out across certain portions of the northern tier of the country. Essentially, the, the, the Puritan experiment uh, took over a lot of New England and then uh, spread over a stretch of upstate New York that had been claimed by Massachusetts uh, prior to the defeat of the Dutch and the creation of the New York colony, and then on to the Western Reserve of Ohio, which had been claimed by Connecticut before the creation of the Ohio Territory and was settled by Connecticut-based land companies. And then a generation later, with the creation of Michigan Territory, many of the initial settlers were from the Yankee-settled Western Reserve of Ohio or the Yankee-settled upstate of New York or from New England itself, and ditto for, um, later on, most of the other upper Great Lakes states. And that creates a, a certain regional culture, a sort of greater New England I call Yankeedom. And a lot of the characteristics that were... Um, you know, distinctive about the early Puritan experiment in New England colonies were hardwired into that whole area and sort of the cultural DNA of the place. And what because, are some of the elements yeah. of that cultural DNA of, of Yankeedom in particular? Yeah, so the, so the early Puritans were coming, you know, my argument is that each of these uh, colonial enterprises had different ethnographic and religious and ideological characteristics, and they settled mutually exclusive stretches of the country. And the, the Puritans were coming to 
create an applied Calvinist religious utopia, you know, a light on the hill, you know, for mankind to look upon. And it was to be a, a community collective enterprise, and they were going to succeed in building this more godly world as they saw it through public institutions. And their great fear in terms of, of freedom, that freedom would be lost by a, a tyrant, you know, one of, one of the individuals in the community rising up and becoming an aristocrat or a tyrant over the rest. So preserving the freedom of the community was about containing um, individuals because under the, the, the Puritan's worldview, you know, humans were, uh, were, were nasty creatures at heart and had to be kept in check. You had to have individual denial for the common good. So and con- that has contra- all sorts of political implications uh, through history uh, going right down to today for that zone of the country. Well, contrast that with another one of these 11 regional um, uh, subcultures uh, in, in America that, um, that that had a starkly different uh, ethnographic and uh, uh, moral foundation. Sure. Uh, one stark contrast is to look at the culture that I call Greater Appalachia, which um, was largely driven by Scots-Irish and Lowland Scots and English borderlanders who were uh, coming in, the, in one of the first really huge immigration waves into the country starting in the 1730s. They came to south-central Pennsylvania, and then they worked their way down the uplands of the south, but also out uh, rafting down the Ohio River to settle the lower tiers of Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, and spread out over the Ozarks and Missouri and Arkansas, and indeed down into North Texas and the Texas Hill Country. And this zone was entirely different than the Yankee one. The experience on, in Ulster and in the lowlands of Scotland and the English marches had been of a, a war-torn society um, where government was, uh, if it came to you at all, was usually coming in the form of you know, a bunch of guys with lances trying to mow down your family. You know, nothing good comes of government. Indeed, you, have to, you were left to have to defend your kith and kin yourself. It was a warrior culture with a great emphasis on preserving individual freedom, responsibility, and autonomy. And in that zone, indeed, when, they, when, when that culture came and started spreading through those other areas of what's now the United States, the emphasis was not on the, the freedom of the community. The definition was the freedom of the individual, and that even orderly and efficient government, which would have, say, been the goal of the Yankees, was considered in and of itself a threat to freedom. Hmm. And you now, can imagine having those two groups of people, among others, bonded into a federation, how you'd have a lot of complicated political arguments. Indeed, though you've just previewed uh, your, your most recent book, uh, American Character, um, it, it, which of course is a, a notion as elusive and oft uh, cited in American political and cultural life uh, um, uh, as anything, and yet uh, oftentimes poorly defined. And you've tried to define uh, American character in terms of this long, um, perpetually unresolvable, unresolvable struggle between um, a, a notion of individual rights at the center and the good of the community uh, at the center. Um, and you know, d- d- describe a little bit just that that tension and whether you feel like um, American identity is. Um, just about the argument between those two, or is more about one or the other? Well, it's a struggle over American identity and sort of our American goals and destiny. And it is indeed um, a balkanized struggle because these different regional cultures all have different ideas about what the answer should be. So it's sort of a contest for defining American character. And in the end, I think the American conversation has so much always been about freedom. How do we 
create a free society and maximize freedom. And the problem is that we disagree, and we even disagree on a regional basis as to what freedom means. And the key conflict is, is freedom, you know, kind of as the Yankees looked at it, a, a community endeavor in building a free community and ensuring the structures and stuff that would allow individual freedom to continue? Or is it just to be seen in individual terms that the goal is to maximize individual freedom and autonomy and freedom from encumbrance, which would be, say, the greater Appalachian point of view? And the tension between that is played out throughout our history. And the, the arguments that I make is that preserving a liberal democracy, you know, a society where the aspiration is to have or the ideal is to have universal human individual freedom requires that you balance the two of them. If you take either of those individual freedom off into an extremity or community or collective values into an extremity, you end up in tyranny. I mean, you have to balance those two forces together, which is why it's so tricky. And our species has not been doing it for very long. <laughs> you know, we, we, we came up with even the idea that you might try to do this, what, 400 years ago? We've had, you know, complex civilizations for 5,000 years. It was never part of the agenda to have a society with mass individual freedom. It's a really hard thing. And what I try to put my finger on is why. It's because you have to put those two things in balance. Individual freedom on a large scale cannot exist without all sorts of shared common civic and physical infrastructure that creates, that nurtures and creates this sort of nest, this context where we all as individuals can be free. And that's something that Americans really need to understand because I think, you know, especially, you know, in our, our discourse of late tends to be very individualistic. And I think people miss that, you know, more government can be oppressive and take away your freedom, but too little government can create a, a situation where you lose your freedom, or at least most people do. Well, that um, dimension of the potential for tyranny is definitely underplayed in American political discourse, and not just in, in recent years. I mean, re really from the start, we, we've always, as Americans, much more feared the threat of uh, t too much rather than uh, too, too little government. But I, I want to return for a moment to um, the, the, the notion of these different regional uh, uh, subcultures, both civic subcultures and um, moral subcultures. Uh, uh, you know, you began with a couple of examples, uh, Yankeedom and Appalachia, that, uh, um, that do derive from uh, different parts of, um, uh, 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 of, of Great Britain. Um, and in some ways, that piece uh, of your argument uh, uh, builds on the great foundation that um, the historian David Hackett Fisher uh, laid when he wrote uh, the book Albion Seed. But you, you extended well beyond that foundation. In Fisher's book, he looked at um, four different regions of Great Britain and how they bequeathed to the U.S. four different uh, uh, political cultures. But y you went uh, much farther to think about not only the rest of the geography of the United States, but the ways in which, for instance, um, you know, what you call El Norte, um, uh, the regional subculture that uh, arises from um, uh, Mexico and, and, and Central uh, America um, is a big part as well of uh, this notion of both American uh, nationhood and American uh, character. Uh, d describe some of these other dimensions of um, American uh, identity that, um, you know, th th that really are not so derived uh, in particular from, um, from the mother country of, uh, of England. Indeed. Well, I mean, uh, you mentioned El Norte, which is what I call the, the northern frontier of New Spain. And, you know, we often, at least in, I'm a Generation Xer, in my generation, we were still taught in public school the, 
think of American history and of colonization by Europeans as something that started east and worked its way westward with manifest destiny, and that that's how you understood the story. But the very first European-American colonizations that took in, on, in what's now the United States actually happened from you know, New Spain. They were in the Southwest long before the pilgrims ever showed up, or early Virginia. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it was a culturally distorted way of looking at things. And while Spain claimed, you know, uh, almost half of the, of the West, it only effectively colonized certain areas, still a very large area, but that area was where this cultural formatting I described took place. You know, in academic terms, this comes down to something that Wilbur Zielinski, a, the, the cultural geography was, geographer, was trying to ask, how does a new culture start when either an old culture has been extirpated from the landscape or you arrive in a place that no one's settled? And his argument was this doctrine of first effective settlement, which I think is very sound, which is that the first settlement group that creates a successful self-sustaining society kind of lays down that cultural DNA. It'll have an outsized influence on the future trajectory. So, so what society. is the cultural DNA of El Norte, and how does it how does it differ from what people might think of as the kind of eastern seaboard uh, d- DNA or, or, or of Yankeedom or Appalachia? Right, absolutely. Well, it was, it, was, um, it was the frontier in the sense that our West was a frontier, but much earlier. And it was a frontier that was so remote in the context of the you know, the, the, 1600, the early 1600s and late 1500s when this area was first settled, the technology was such that it was so far removed from Mexico City and Madrid. It would take months overland by wagons to, to, to get any communication from one place to another. Spanish policy prohibited ships from calling at the ports in that area, so you had to travel overland. It was almost like a, a lunar base it was so far removed, and so it started developing its own characteristics that were very different than those of central Mexico. It was much more... Um, individualistic and uh, and much more emphasis on on um, you know self motivation and the possibility of sort of entrepreneurial activity than was allowed in the more densely populated and more um, hierarchical societies of central Mexico and it also had a lot more um, uh, racial mixing where in other parts of Mexico there would be a, a, a gradiated scale a, a caste hierarchy depending on how European or how much indigenous blood somebody had, all of that went by the wayside in the northern part of Mexico because the, there were so few women of European birth there that everybody was of mixed race. And that kind of that flattened things. It was much more uh, uh, flattened and equal than it would be in the other parts of Mexico. And there were all sorts of tensions promptly with central Mexico. At the same time, it was, of course, distinctive in language terms and the structure of government and the prevailing church than the other parts, uh, than the, the, the adjacent uh, English-dominated cultures that it ended up bordering with and for a time being conquered by. You know, if you, if you bring us to the present day uh, and the challenges in our ever more diverse and, uh, you know, uh, ever more fragmented um, uh, national culture, how do you think it is best done to sustain a sense of common knowledge, common cultural and civic literacy um, once you become aware uh, of these different subcultures. Right. Well, that's, a, that's the enormous challenge. And I think that the fact that we have a shared set of sort of, you know, cherished institutions and constitutional norms was something that acted as the original compromise to bring the, the sort of original eight or so cultures on the eastern seaboard together. They didn't trust each other. And so um, having that was really, really important. Anytime you're sort of challenging and 
bringing down the, the, the norms of democratic behavior and constitutional compromise, you're, you're entering dangerous territory. You know, you we're, we're not going to, you know, hear a uh, Supreme Court nominee because it's in the final year of a president we don't like. You know, that, that, that kind of stuff is corrosive because those, those constitutional bargains and institutional um, um, norms and norms of behavior are something that's held us together. So I think that's one issue for certain. And also the fact that we're a historically amnesiatic people has always been troublesome. And even more so now in a time when the world is getting much smaller and the pace of events are, are much, much faster. The fact that we don't understand ourselves, um, you know, that what had happened even, even two months ago seems like it's uh, almost forgotten half the time because the stream of information is getting larger and larger. And if you're losing your footings in that way, your sense of, of um, what the, the, the structure of the country is, why the different regions fought with one another, what, um, what were the things that managed to hold us together in the various bargains and what were the things that, that drove us apart? Those are things that most, you know, more unitary national cultures, you know, be Norwegians or Japanese, those are things that, that people um, have a shared understanding of the narrative of the past and the, you know, the compromises and errors and, uh, and triumphs that the society made, or at least a narrative about them, that helps hold the place together. And if anything, history has become more and more fractured in the way it's taught and with less and less of a sense of those things. And I think that that's um, one of the things that's starting to dissolve a lot of the adhesives that we need to hold a incredibly dynamic and balkanized and fractious and diverse society together. And those, are, those can be strengths, but keeping a central gravitational pull requires that we all have sort of a... Um, a, a story that we share of who we are and what sort of our, our, our nation's purpose is. And I think that in itself, you know, it, there, there was a, a mythic version of it that was oppressive to many people and left many people out, but there used to be one. There needs to be a new version of that that's updated and, and has some broad agreement and is broadly disseminated that we all can kind of share. And that's something I think has been lost in, in recent generations and is making it harder to agree on you are describing exactly the impetus for the What Every American Should Know project that we're running out of the Aspen Institute. Let, let me close simply with um, uh, an invitation, as we've been doing on this podcast uh, with all our guests. We've been asking people around the country to, in a sense, participate in the crowdsourcing uh, of a compendium, of a, of a massive list of, of, quote, What Every American Should Know. Uh, I, I'm asking you, um, what are your top 10 things? Um, what are the top 10 things that you think every American should know. Sure. Well, I've spent a lot of time thinking about sort of the idea of freedom and how you perpetuate it. And sometimes it's good to have the cautionary tales. Um, and I guess a, a number of the ones I would offer that maybe things that haven't come up before, that maybe not the all-time top 10, but perhaps the top 10 that you should know and might not. Mm -hmm. um, the first one for context is the story of Squanto or Tusquantum who was an Indian when the, when the pilgrims first arrived in, at, in 1620. There was an Indian there, who, a Native American, who knew how to speak English fluently and acted as their guide. And the reason is that he'd been abducted 15 years before on the coast of Maine, had been brought to London. He probably, given the people that were financing the expedition he was involved in, was probably running in Shakespeare's circles. So uh, the, the arguments that were occurring in the, uh, around John Locke and some of the early philosophers just before the American Revolution about the danger and the need to enslave the poor, regardless of their 
um, background is a really valuable uh, philosophical foundation. Another is to know about the Whiskey Rebellion and associated rebellions of the early 1790s. These were rebellions by backcountry settlers against sort of subprime mortgage-style corruption in the early days right after <laughs> the revolution and are very important for understanding the nature of the state at the time and the conflicts. One should know about the Cherokees' effort to follow our... Uh, to, to, to follow our lead by creating their own nation state and their own language and their own institutions of government on the good faith that they would then be accepted as civilized people, and it didn't quite turn out that way. One should also read James Henry Hammond, the former governor of South Carolina in the Civil War era, uh, to really get a grasp on the um, Confederate ideology and just how far gone it was. It wasn't about states' rights by any means. <laughs> Another is to know well the uh, effect that Gilded Age trusts had on the economy and the social space. Start with Standard Oil and the railroads and work your way out. Another is to follow social Darwinism, especially Yale's William Graham Sumner, because that was a dominant ideology, the trails of which you can still detect uh, constantly in our discourse right up to today. Um, Woodrow Wilson's laws suppressing dissent during World War I, um, Dwight Eisenhower's um, departure speech warning about the military-industrial complex, and everybody in new generation should be aware of things like the My Lai Massacre, how a, you know, our, our own people and our own army trying to do good things, how things can drift off in, uh, in, in bad circumstances into terrible atrocities that we think that we Americans would never commit, and well, the effect that war has on the on the soldier, regardless of what nation they're from. Colin, it is such a, first of all, uh, such a rich list. Um, Colin Woodard, thank you very much for joining us and for all the work you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. That's Eric Liu speaking with Colin Woodard. Liu directs the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. Woodard is an award-winning author and journalist. In next week's Extra, we'll hear from Maria Hinojosa, anchor and executive producer of Latino USA, NPR's only national Latino news and cultural weekly radio program. Hinojosa has a 25-year history of reporting on critical issues like immigrant work camps in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Her stories focus on the changing cultural and political landscape in America. Submit your top 10 list on the website whateveryamericanshouldknow.org. And remember, our regular Aspen Ideas To Go episodes that feature onstage discussions from Aspen Institute events are still being released weekly. The next show will feature First Lady Michelle Obama speaking about the value of sports and physical activity for children in the U.S. Find out more about the podcast at aspenideas.org. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show was produced by our team at the Aspen Institute and featured the song Throughout the City by David Shesday. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.